Hello, Lion Cook Nation. This is Ray DeLucci with the Lion Cook Thoughts Podcast, and I am so excited for this episode. Uh, before we get into it, I just wanted to share that this episode is going to be something a little different. Usually my solo episodes are based on uh, maybe my thoughts on a certain topic or what I just think about industry topics in general. And I usually go and over the course of the week, because I put this out every Wednesday, I basically just go over what I want to talk about that certain week, and I just kind of brainstorm what I'm thinking and what uh, what some of the thoughts I have on this or that. And I want to do something different this week, because I know that I love history. I know that I love learning more. Um, I'm an avid fan of learning. Um, I love conversation and just being more in the know. And I feel like if you're going to be interesting person in the industry, you have to have a little bit more knowledge than everyone else. And so in that quest, I want to make us all more knowledgeable and start researching things in the industry, uh, maybe people, movements, different types of cuisines and where they came from. Um, this isn't going to be every solo episode. I'm going to break it up. Um, but uh, I definitely want to start researching. And I thought, what better place to start than uh, talking about Augustus Scoffier? I mean, the man who really changed the way the food industry would work forever, having one of the largest impacts on our industry even to this day. Uh, his impact was so profound, and I didn't even know half of what I found out in terms of what he had done for our industry uh, while researching for this podcast. I pulled this. Uh, I pulled the information from his book, Escafé Le Guide Culinaire, um, and also some website articles, some website archives from online libraries. Uh, I did some pretty um, in-depth research. Uh, obviously, if there's something wrong, uh, you feel free to let me know. Um, I'm never going to claim to be a history expert. This is just what I've gathered. And over the years, things could change. Accounts could change. So like I said, I don't know. It might not be perfect, but this is what I found. This is my perception of it all. Uh, just uh, another warning. I am not good at speaking French. Uh, I took French in college, and I was terrible at it, passing both times with 65s. So please do not judge me when I try to... Um, talk French, or at least try to pronounce some of the things he's done, because it's inevitable that I'll be saying some French words when talking about Escoffier. That being said, before we get into it, I just want to remind you all that I am putting out the Anthony Bourdain episode to commemorate him on June 8th, and I was able to stay on top of all of my submissions so far in terms of people sending me their messages, so I want to extend the deadline till June 6th, so I'm going to extend the deadline for the podcast till June 6th, because I know there's so many of you out there who love Anthony Bourdain and had such, had, you were just so impacted by by him and you're not sending me your messages and this is the time I think this is going to be a beautiful beautiful episode to put out to the industry and I just don't want anyone to miss out on it so please if you have not sent me a message go to my Instagram it's in my uh, bio on Instagram click the link and send me a voice message if you can't figure it out message me I'm always there to help just please send in your messages for the Bourdain podcast episode I really really would mean a ton if you could do so um, that being said, before we get started, I said last week that I would shout out the countries that are listening to my podcast because I'm a little bit shocked um, at how many are listening. And when I started, the geographic location for my audience was 100% United States. <coughs> and now uh, we're down to 88% United States. And here are some of the countries that uh, have been listening in. And if you are living in these countries, thank you so much for tuning in. I think it's crazy. Uh, to hear that these are the countries that are tuning in every week or every couple of weeks to hear what I have to say. So Canada, obviously, um, because it's right up north of my house. Uh, Indonesia, Zimbabwe, United Kingdom, Germany, Italy, Portugal, India, 
Poland, Puerto Rico, the Philippines, Guam, Armenia, Sweden, Australia, Ireland, South Africa, the Cayman Islands, Mexico, Qatar, United Arab Emirates, New Zealand, Taiwan, Japan, Spain, Denmark, Aruba, Brazil, Colombia, and Zambia. So thank you all so much for listening. And thank you so much for just, you know, giving me your attention. Uh, I never thought I would connect with so many people on this level. So it truly is special for me to have you all listening and tuning in and just being a part of this podcast. It really makes makes my, my job of doing it a lot more rewarding. I mean, I love it. It's fun. This is my hobby. This is what I do. Um, but it makes it even better knowing that there are people out there from all walks of the world, all walks of life, tuning in and just trying to get better informed on the cooking industry or just trying to hear someone else's opinion that's not theirs. And I think it's a good sign that our audience is growing because it shows that there's more open-mindedness in our in our industry and there's more people willing to just, you know, listen more and maybe address the, maybe just being open to seeing things in a different light. Uh, so I'm very excited for that in an industry that's so cutthroat and so, so, so um, used to the past. Uh, so uh, like I said, thank you so much. And thank you for everyone who's been listening. I mean, the support I receive is insane. Uh, feel free to go on Apple, uh, rate the podcast however you want, send feedback. Uh, I really thrive on feedback. And if you could just send me feedback through Instagram or Apple Podcast Reviews or anywhere else that you listen to the episode, just send me that feedback because I'm really, really, really interested in it. And I just don't, um, I don't know. I think feedback helps you grow so much. And without it, I don't know how we get better. So please just send me your feedback. And I'm very excited for what you all have to say. Uh, that being said, um, I don't think there's anything else that I really want to get into before the Scott Faye episode. Uh, I just really want to know what y'all think of this at the end of it. I mean, if there's an episode to give me feedback, this is it. Because I want to know if you're interested in this. Uh, because I'm, otherwise, I'll just do the research and learn myself. But if you're really interested in uh, the history of it all and understanding where we came from in terms of cooks, I mean, this is going to be the episode type for you. And I, like I said, I don't know how often I'll do these. I want to see how this one goes. I want to see what you all think of it. I want to see how I'm able to do it. Um, but if you enjoyed it, please let me know. And if you didn't like it, please let me know. Because this audience, this podcast is as much yours as it is mine. I make this podcast for cooks to relate to and listen. And if, at the end of a long day cooks don't want to hear about Escoffier or the history of the cooking world, then I probably, you know, maybe I'll do it somewhere else. But I want to know. I just want to know what y'all think. I want to know if y'all appreciate it or not. I want to know if this is something you want to keep going. All right. So with that being said, I'm excited to introduce to you the podcast about Auguste Escoffier. So I heard, first heard about Scoffier in my fundamentals class in the Culinary Institute of America, and his name came up a lot. Uh, you know, the founder of the Five Mother Sauces, uh, the godfather of our cuisine. You know, the list goes on. Um, the father of chefs, uh, the king of chefs. I mean, he has so many different titles and nicknames. And I mean, for me, he was just someone who embodied what work ethic was. He was someone who embodied what it meant to just affect change no matter what. And before we get into his biography, I just want to say that while researching him, I admired even more what he did. He was someone that I could only dream of being, someone who had an impact that would last for generations to come. And I know his name will forever be etched into the hearts of the cooks who come after me. And I know that he 
is someone that we all should at least strive to kind of be like someone who saw a change that is needed and is able to make that change and speak out and was able to just put their best foot forward and try their best to change what the industry is and what it has to offer. So that being said, I really didn't know who Escafé was for a long time. I'd heard his name, of course, and I knew in a general sense who he was, but I never truly, truly got involved with who he actually was. And so when the time came for me to start like wondering more, I was like shocked at how little I knew. Um, and maybe all of you know this. Maybe I'm the only one who didn't know this information, honestly. But if you are like me, you know who he was, but you didn't really take the time and research to go out and actually see what he was and what he meant to his peers at his time and what he has meant to us nowadays. Because he has far more reaching, um, his, his work far outreaches just the five mother sauces and the hierarchy of kitchens. Uh, there's so much more he did for the industry. And there's so many different aspects he incorporated into the industry that I'm excited to share with y'all. So I don't know what got me into looking after him. I think just one day uh, it just came across my um, my page on Instagram. I saw Escoffier and I was like, you know what? Like I don't know a lot about him. And I feel as a cook, I should. Uh, he's uh, really, really, really someone who... I should at least know a little bit more about. And I had his book. I bought it at the Culinary Institute of America when I was in my sophomore year of college. And I just wanted to better understand who he was and better understand what um, what type of chef he was and what he meant to the industry. So this is, this is basically his story from what I've gathered from his book and whatever else readings I've found on the internet and archive libraries. I spent about a good six to seven hours researching him. Uh, which is a lot of time for a cook to spend just doing something else. So, you know, like I said, this isn't a definitive history of him. This is what I found. Um, maybe you all have information that could totally contrast what I'm saying. Um, I, like I said, I'm not a history expert, but I wanted to do this episode. I've always wanted to share the stories of the past as well. I think it's very interesting to look at where we came from. So this is what I found on Augustus Scoffier. And to start, I guess, he was born on October 28th in 1846 in Villeneuve-Lobay, France. Uh, it's a small village not far from Nice, and it is a hard-working village. A lot of people in his time were blacksmiths there. His father was a blacksmith, and his, you know, there's certain recountings of him saying how his father instilled in him a work ethic like no one else in his craft. His father, a man at 75 years of age, would walk seven miles to the city there and then seven miles back to sell tobacco he grew. I mean, his dad was someone who was instrumental in the type of person he would become. He was very, um, was a very hardworking man. He grew up in a very hardworking family, and this would allow him to get that work ethic that is so much needed in the cooking industry. Uh, Scoffier, he began his career at the age of 13 in his uncle's restaurant. Um, so basically, his father, you know, needed. August to go and do something and August started to have a little bit of an affinity for cooking so he sent him to his brother's restaurant and it was this training that was rigorous and sometimes downright barbaric in a Scoffier's own words the kitchens were not kept clean there was no organization and it was just a mess to get food out uh, so basically the way kitchens worked back then is instead of a check coming in or an order coming in and each station being responsible for something the whole team would work on one ticket and then go to the next, or one order and go to the next. And they would just kind of mass rush this one order and then go to the next one. 
So food would come out at very odd timing stages and usually all at once. Uh, it, there was no really courses back then. And the kitchens, you know, from accounts of before Scoffier were messy. They were dirty. They were not clean. There was no organization. It was cluttered. It was, if you could only imagine, like, you going home after a long day's work and your room is really messy. And you know that feeling you get where it's just like, oh, there's, like, stuff everywhere. That's at least how I get. And then... Having to clean that, I mean, I couldn't imagine working in a kitchen space where it's like all cluttered and food just sitting on the floor and no one's sweeping or anything. But hey, that's what they—that's what it was like back then uh, in the 1800s, and that was where he—that um, was where he started to learn how to become a cook. And the kitchen wasn't just dirty; it was unsafe, and it was very demanding. I mean, they were using tools and equipment back then that they didn't quite understand, and obviously there were no safety, um, no safety. Uh, uses on these machines or whatever they were using. So a lot of people get injured losing fingers, you know, um, ended up ble- like, you know, just like brutal injuries in the kitchens. And God, I w- I'm so happy I didn't become a cook in this era. Um, and restaurant work back then was not seen as a great profession. Uh, as we all know, as we all talk about, uh, the rise of the celebrity chef is so great because the cook's job was looked down upon for so many generations. And so that's why it's so exciting for me as a cook and for a lot of people that cooks are getting more acclaimed nowadays because back then they they really were looked down as servants or people of low class because they worked in kitchens and now we hold chefs in such high regards. So a big thank you to Escoffier for starting that trend. In 1865, Escoffier moved to Paris to further his culinary career and worked in the restaurant Le Petit Moulin Rouge. In 1870, the Franco-Prussian War broke out and he became a chef in the army. And this war was based on uh, trying to unify Germany. And, you know, to make it a long story short, to not going into the history lessons, uh, Escoffier just served in this army as a cook. He got in as a banquet chef and moved around as a cook. And why this was an important part of his story is he saw the hierarchy in the army. And he was, like, thinking about his time back in his uncle's restaurants or where he had worked before. And he said he could apply this to kitchens. And he wanted to apply this because he knew kitchens weren't efficient. And it bothered him that kitchens weren't efficient and that they weren't able to move at a better pace and serve better food. And he just saw the food profession being so much more than what it was. And so in the Army, he went ahead and started to think of ways he could get more efficiency out of his kitchen workers. Uh, this, in turn, led to the certain job functions of staff members, which we'll get into later. So after he gets out of the Army, he moves to England and applies at the Savoy Hotel in London, founded by Caesar Ritz. And then he start, helped uh, open the London Carlton Hotels, and this was in 1898 and 1899. These hotels were big. They were sponsored by the Prince of Wales and was known as the first place where a gentleman could take his wife after supper. Um, in England in the, early 18, or in the 1890s, early 1890s, it was actually not allowed for women to go eat in public. Uh, as drastic as that may sound, this was a rule that... For every reason, women weren't allowed to go eat in public, and Escoffier was a big proponent of changing that. We'll get more into that later as well. Um, but basically, the restaurant became a place of status, and everyone had to be seen there, or everyone had to eat there. Uh, it was like, you know, it was like a rapper getting Louis Vuitton or wearing Gucci. Like, going to Escoffier's restaurant was a symbol that you had made it, that you had status in society, that you meant something. And I thought it was interesting that a restaurant, I mean, we have restaurants today like 11 Madison Park, Le Bernardin, and Alinea where you know, you know, a lot of high profile people go 
And I feel like a lot of people go just solely based on the name and the fame and the notoriety. And I feel like that's what a Scotia's restaurant would have been like. It would have been somewhere where you would have had the, the people who were just everyday people dining alongside people of fame. I mean, you listen to the Jeremiah Tower interview I did with him. So that's what Stars was like. It would be a night where people from everyday society would meet the people of their dreams, their idols, the people they looked up to in society. And that's really what Escoffier's restaurant had to offer. And the restaurant was no small feat. Uh, it would get around 500 guests daily. And Escoffier would be in the dining room greeting the guests and orchestrating their dining experience. So he was as much as the first celebrity chef as anyone because he was out in the dining room actually greeting them. So he would focus on prep all day and focus on organization. And he would be able to do so well that he would be able to walk out into the dining room and leave his cooks um, to do their thing so he could go talk to guests and inter interact. And I think this is a big reason on why he was so successful, why his name is shouted throughout the rooftop so much, because he was able to go out and effectively meet his guests. And I mean, now we look at it as something that's easy, but just think about it. So his kitchens before then were all messy and messes, and you had to have a lot of people watching over. And he would be able to just leave his sous chef or chef de cuisine in the kitchen, and he would go out and just talk to the guests. And how impressive this must have been for people was is mind-boggling because kitchens were not like that. You had to be there at all times. And for him to just leave the machine to go and interact with guests was something that, you know, not a lot of people had seen before. So that was, in part, a big reason why people respected him and knew he was more than just a chef. Um, his organization was so effective that it even made it to the crew of the Titanic, along with his menu. Uh, he was actually responsible for developing the menu on the Titanic because back then the Titanic was one of the biggest things the world had seen in terms of an event where this ship was going to be, you know, just sailing and the size of it and what it had to offer. And his menu was used in the first class dining room and it was used all the way up until the Titanic sank in 1912. Uh, Escoffier planned and organized the installation of the first a la carte restaurants aboard transatlantic liners. He was responsible for, you know, making restaurants on ships actually serve courses. He was responsible for allowing courses to be served at different times of the day. I mean, this is, these are all basic things, but Escoffier really revolutionized the way we eat food, the way we dine out. And it's something to be said that he was able to do this. He also set up a firm a Escoffier LTD, which had a line of preserved canned goods and sauces. These became super popular and branded the chef's legacy even further. And the firm was sold in 1915 due to the loss of a son at war and another son being enlisted. So Escoffier's life was nowhere um, as easy as it may have seemed in terms of his fame. He did end up losing a child at war and he, he ended up losing his wife near the end of his life. But we'll get into that later. What was really interesting to me is how he kind of branded himself into the canned goods and sauce section. We'll talk a little bit more about what his impact was there, but just think about that. Like he he was so ahead of his time. Like it's so like crazy to me. Like he just he branded his name on sauces and canned goods, the first to ever do it, the first chef to ever do it, and was selling it, and people were buying it and eating it up, and it was just like this massive chef back in the day was able to pull together all of his resources and was able to sell himself and his product effectively. I mean, we, we talk about entrepreneurs in this day and age. Look at Augustus Scoffier, one of the greatest entrepreneurs of all time in the food industry. I mean, not only revolutionizing the way we cook, the way we eat, the way we perceive food, but also the way we sell food and sell ourselves as chefs. I mean, if anything, he is someone who really just – 
stood out. I mean, his, it's cr- like, do you know how crazy it is? Like in the like 1900s, late 1800s, for a chef uh, to become celebrity status and put out their home good and canned products, like that is insane. And well, he did it. So I mean, I'm just blown away by that. I don't know if anyone else is, but it was just a crazy. It's just a crazy thought to think that he went from a cook, which was so low on the totem pole of society, to someone branding his own sauce and canned goods and selling it to people in society. It's just it's crazy to me. In 1919, the president of France, R. Poincaré, conferred on Escoffier the cross of the Chevalier de la Légion d'Honneur. I, like I said, can't speak French. This is cringeworthy sometimes. I'm sorry. At the age of 73, Escoffier left London to settle in Monte Carlo. During the next few years, he would be awarded and praised around the world for his work, eventually sailing to New York City to celebrate his 80th birthday. Um, he was so much of the adventurist, even late in life. I mean, his 80th birthday making the trek. Uh, to New York City had to be tolling on him, but it definitely was something that he always wanted to do, and he always wanted to force himself to evolve and be greater and to face challenges, and this was one challenge that he wanted to do, so he ended up sailing to New York City, and I mean, he's 80 at this time, and during the end of his life, his financial state was actually precarious due to not having the time to look after his investments, or he, he just didn't have the inclination to do it. And it's sad to think that um, he, you know, he built up this empire, but in the last couple of years of his life, he was financially stressed because no one had ever done it before. And this is, I think, what inspires me so much about pioneers of industries and whatnot and why I like to look at the whole story, uh, because he, he was the first one to do it. He's the first one to brand himself and whatnot. And he didn't realize how much capital he had, and he didn't realize what he was sitting on. And eventually through not keeping up on his investments and not being, you know, financially aware of everything, he lost a lot of money. And it's just sad to think that the greatest, one of the greatest chefs of our time ever was financially burdened at the end of his career. Like so many cooks start out at the beginning of their career. And, you know, even that was a lesson into making sure we kept our money straight and making sure that we had funds. And I mean, there's so much to be learned throughout his life, but this was just something I found very interesting. He died in February 1935 at the age of 88, um, and this was a couple weeks after his wife had died. So him and his wife, you know, they died around the same time. If you're wondering who his right wife is, his na- her name is Delphine Defee, and she was a poetry writer, and she helped him with some of his early books. And they had two sons and a daughter, one of which who passed in the war. And, you know, it was really interesting to me that he married someone who wrote poetry because she was able to help him develop uh, his cookbooks and help him develop his writing. And it was just really, um, a great, a great match. Um, great match, uh, Delphine and August. I mean, great couple, great in terms of what could be accomplished, the works of literature that still stand today, the book that I'm holding right here next to me. I mean, it's just crazy what they were able to accomplish. So kudos to him and kudos to her for writing, the the books that they did and being able to put out the work so that it could stand the test of time. Uh, there's a story when August met Kaiser Wilhelm II on board of a German ship. He stated, I am the emperor of Germany, but you are the emperor of chefs. And this is so true. I think I think Escoffier deserves to be called that. He was someone who cooks could look, look up to. I mean, I look up to Anthony Bourdain, I feel, the same way cooks would have looked up to Escoffier. Someone who cared about the cooks in the profession, someone who took the extra step to become financially stable and financially set and to become more than just a cook. 
So, yeah, I mean, this is, that's the, kind of like the life of Escoffier. There's a lot more out there on him. Uh, but I wanted to get into his work and his impact and what he meant to the industry. So, to start, he also had the people he looked up to, one of which was Antonin Karem. And if you don't know who Karem was, feel free to take a look. He was known for his elaborately designed dishes and centerpieces. And Escoffier enjoyed the artistry of Karem, but he thought the garnishes were a little too finicky. So, along with organizing the kitchen... He built on Karem's work, and he worked closely uh, with many aristocrats to develop menus, much like Karem did. Karem was very much the artist himself, working with aristocrats to develop menus and also publish many cookbooks. And Karem, like I said, is known for these centerpieces that, you know, were over-the-top and grandiose and large, and Escoffi just thought they were a little too much. And so he broke down a lot of Karem's work in organizing ways. And a big thing that Karem offered to us was a plethora of different sauces and techniques on how to get to these sauces and Escoffier saw similarities in the sauces and he broke them down into five mother sauces and he came up with them and if you've been to culinary school you could probably name these uh, if you haven't been to culinary school you could probably name these and if you're not sure what they are uh, they are bechamel, velouté, espagnol, sauce tomate, and hollandaise. Uh, those are your five mother sauces cooks and if you don't know what those are you better go back to school or you better open a book and start reading because you got to know those. Uh, Escoffier wrote eight cookbooks, but his most profound was Le Guide Culinaire, uh, published in 1903, and it had over 5,000 recipes. I mean, this book is a beast. It is regarded as one of, if not the most important cookbooks ever written. And it's just so important because it's so fundamentally changed in terms of resources what cooks have. I mean, he starts out with his stocks and his sauces, and it really is a course on cooking. I mean, he starts out with sauces, uh, He then the next chapter is garnishes. And it talks all about just, like, what you can garnish your dishes with. I mean, we're not even in the main course, and we're at page 50. Um, it's just what he had to offer in this book was timeless. And, you know, cooks still use it today. And I, it's there's so many, like, different ratios and what he has to offer. I mean, so, sorry, getting off track. Chapter 1 is sauces. Chapter 2 is garnishes. Chapter 3 goes into soups. Everything from clarifications to garnishes for soups to foreign soups to thick soups. Chapter 4 is all about the hors d'oeuvre. I mean, a whole chapter dedicated to hors d'oeuvres. Chapter 5 is all about eggs, you know, poached, soft-boiled, molded, fried, hard-boiled, scrambled. Chapter 6 is all about fish. Chapter 6 is all about meat. Um, chapter 8 is all about um, poultry. Sorry, Chapter 7 is all about meat. Chapter 8 is all about poultry. Chapter 9 is all about game meat, 10 is about composite entrees, 11 is about cold preparations, 12 is about roast, 13 is about vegetables and products like that, 14 is about sweets, puddings, and desserts, 15 is about ices such as ice creams or sorbets, 16 is about ending savory courses, and 17 is about poached fruits, jams, and drinks. And then there's a bunch of his menus, there's a glossary of everything, I mean the, the book is large and you should definitely check it out because there's so much to know and i just wanted to give you um a brief uh i guess overview of what a recipe would look like so this is uh for stuffed cabbage and i find it interesting because in this recipe there's no there's no like amounts like this is what i think is so interesting about looking at old cookbooks they didn't have amounts per se they just kind of you just have, kind of have to figure it out on your own and so this is a recipe for stuffed cabbage, and he says, Blanch and refresh a small whole cabbage, then remove the center stump. Place the cabbage on a cloth, carefully separate the leaves starting from the outside, and season lightly. 
Starting from the center this time, insert between the leaves layers of well-seasoned stuffing made from chopped cooked or raw meat, chopped onion, and chopped parsley. All right, so this is a big thing on why you had to read the recipe beforehand because the recipe just says stuffed cabbage. But you would have had to read to know that you had to make a filling of well-seasoned stuffing. You had to make a filling of raw meat, onion, and parsley. And if you didn't read the recipe, you would just be – if you started working as the recipe started, you wouldn't have any idea that you already had to have that stuffing. So then you must reform the cabbage to its original shape by pressing each layer to the next, cover completely with thin rashers of fat, bacon, and tie up. Place in a pan with some bouillon and some of its fat, cover and braise very slowly for three hours. And then to serve, untie the cabbage and discard the fat, drain the cabbage, place it on a dish, and coat with the braising liquid, which has been skimmed of fat, reduced and thickened with sauce demi-gloss. Serve the remainder of the, so- remainder of the sauce separately. So not only did you have to cook the cabbage like he says, but then you must make a reduced sauce with the sauce demi-gloss. So then you have to make demi-gloss and add that to the braising liquid. I mean, his recipes were so in-depth, and they said it in a few words, and cooks were able to pull from this because so much was in here and so many so many different styles of cooking, and there's weird things in here, and there's things that we still use today, and I just think it's very interesting of what he had to offer in terms of his book. And, you know, to just have a piece of work still standing to this day is something to look at and be proud of, and I think it's so cool that he did that. Another big impact Escoffier had was introducing courses and dining. He got rid of a lot of food coming all at once. I mean, if you could imagine, you go to a place like EMP, instead of getting courses, all that would just come at once and bombard you. I mean, food would get cold while you're trying to eat other food. It just wouldn't make sense how food was thrown out at you at the time. And so the service style is known as a la russe and is still used today. Uh, he also developed the art of canning vegetables. He's the first person to really commercially can tomatoes which I thought was really interesting. And he was able to preserve vegetables so they could be used longer and you know, just be preserved more so that people could have them in times where they needed them, which is huge for the not only for the preservation of food, but the preservation of people. Having canned vegetables is really important, and he is someone who helped develop it even more. He's also responsible for inventing the bouillon cube, wanting it to make it easier for cooks to add seasoning and different types of flavor to their cooking. And he thought the bouillon cube was something that he could use. He made standards of cleanliness in his kitchens, made them safer, and really just pulled the industry together. He was able to make kitchen work a lot more clean, a lot more safe. He was able to make cooks understand that if they wanted to work better, they had to clean up after themselves and make their stations tighter and make them more places where professionals worked and not just places where food was just slumped and thrown out. He was very, very interested in the welfare of his cooks and made sure that they had to take pride in the work they had done. Uh, he really thought it was dishonorable if you were a cook and you did not take pride in your work and if you did not really just understand that your work meant something, that you were feeding people. You weren't just putting food up into a window or what they had back then. It really meant that you were feeding others and that people were putting this food into their bodies. And so that we had to work clean, we had to work efficiently, and we had to work in a way that was better and more efficient for the industry as a whole. So that is the first part of Escoffier. Part two will come after our quick break, but I'm very excited for you all to keep hearing what the man who so many claim as the emperor of chefs did for this industry. Hmm. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. All right, welcome to the, back to the episode about Escoffier. So uh, I just want to start with a couple quotes on what chefs from today have said. So Heston Blumenthal says, Auguste Escoffier was without a doubt the greatest and most radical chef of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And he knows him for getting rid of finicky garnishes, heavy sauces, and over-elaborate presentations. Um, he knows that Escoffier wanted the guide to be a useful tool for cooks. And this is a quote from Heston Blumenthal. This is what he was saying about Escoffier and what his cooking meant. He says, good cooking doesn't come with breaking with tradition, but taking it in new directions, evolution rather than revolution, the ability to uh, build upon what we have. And I think that's what Escoffier was known for and doing so well is his ability to build on Karem's work, which was, yes, very important, but able to put it in a more organized and thoughtful way for the diner to have a better experience. Tim Ryan, the president of the Culinary Institute of America, says in the foreword of Escoffier, the guide culinaire, that Escoffier recognized the need to simplify he considered not only the preparation of the dish, but also the customer's enjoyment of the dish. And he says that the guide contains the wisdom of ages for chefs. He was an innovator who would not want us to be slavishly bound to his ideas, but to use them as a springboard for new directions. One of the catchphrases from Escoffier was face and bell, uh, keep it simple. And I think this is so important to kind of talk about. You know, Escoffier came up in an era where food was at both its most drastic, at both ends of the spectrum, it's most drastic. I mean, if you think about it, at one end there was like the slop-throwing uh, just anarchy that were kitchens, and then on the other side there was Antonin Karen making these over-the-top elaborate pieces of artwork out of his dining experiences, and Escoffier was kind of in the middle of it, pulling both in order to make it simple yet elegant. He saw the beauty in not over indulging guests he saw the beauty in just giving them the right amount and allowing them to be odd but not be overly saturated with art and food and just everything else coming out at them and so that's really what he was all about and before we go any further i just want to talk about some of the history on french kitchens and if you didn't know this this is really interesting if you do then you are i mean obviously you know what i'm talking about but the theme of the restaurant only started around the end of the 18th century in france so the theme of a place where people could go get food was not really heard of. Uh, basically, people cooked at home, and they didn't really ever go. They never really went out. Uh, there weren't a lot of gatherings in terms of places where strangers could go together and just get food whenever. The idea of serving different foods at different times of a day based on want was a very new concept for people. People never had heard of a place where they could go and order whatever they wanted at whatever time of day, or that certain things were served at different times of day, and that's when they could order. People weren't used to this system, and it was a very weird thing for them to think about. The very first restaurants were based on serving restorative soups and stews. And the word restaurant comes from the French for uh, restaurer, which means to restore. And during this uh, time, people went to these places because they thought that soups and stews had some sort of a spiritual value to them, that eating them would renew you uh, and renew your soul and kind of help you become better in your life. And so that's why people went there. 
And during the reign of King Henry IV, guilds were made for functions such as roasting, meats, making sauces and bakers, uh, being able to bake bread and cakes and desserts and everything else. And these guilds um, would be able to work out of taverns and inns, and they would serve food made um, by the different guilds. And this is really where the first restaurant started to take shape. The main focus back then, though, was a place to drink and sleep. And food was an afterthought. So a lot of people would go to these inns and places to sleep and drink. And yeah, they would get food, but they never really thought much of it. It was just food. It was nothing more, nothing less. Just something they had to do to be able to have the energy to keep going on their travels. Diners would sit at a large table and they would eat family style. There were, like I said, no courses. And the first restaurant opened in Paris in 1765 when a tavern keeper hung a sign advertising his restorative soup. The dish was sheep feet and white sauce. <laughs> Sounds delicious. Um, but it popularized, and the medical aspect of the restaurant dropped to focus on more diverse offerings. Uh, this restaurant actually got sued by the guild because they thought they had the only right of serving food, but he actually won his suit, and after winning the ability to serve his own independent restaurant, more independent restaurants popped up. Like I said, dropping the medical aspect of restaurants so they were able to serve more things that people would crave and want to eat. Fast forward to the 19th century, and Antonin Karam was at work perfecting his trend of elaborate courses, bringing food from just food to an art form. And then we go from that to in London, where Caesar Ritz opened hotels in London, offering fine restaurants where at least we catch up with Escoffier, and that's kind of the history of French restaurants um, in a very short and condensed version. Before Ritz and Escoffier opened the restaurant, it was not common for one for men and women to go dine out. Sorry for that. Uh, women, like I said before, weren't allowed to go out to eat in the 1890s in England, which is crazy. Uh, they were, I'm not sure why they just weren't allowed to. It was, it, de- it was deemed unladylike for them to go out to eat. And Escoffier and Ritz saw and took huge issue with this. And they wanted men and women both to go out to eat. So Ritz made a brilliant campaign um, that, you know, people should go to his restaurant after going to see theater. Uh, after they saw theater, after a night out, uh, he, his words were, a man and a woman should be able to go eat together and enjoy their time together even more. So very much a proponent of women's rights in terms of allowing women to go out to eat. Like, it's such a basic thing. But back then, it was a big deal. And Ritz and Escafé were able to change the, the topic on that and allow men and women to go out to eat together. And, I mean, in doing so, they were able to just really bring together people and bring together the dining experience as a whole. And this is what really got restaurants to become more and more well-known and more and more wanted and sought after by people. Uh, Now I want to talk about introducing the brigade system into the industry. So there were two main channels of Escoffier's brigade system. This is definitely his largest impacting thing as we still use his, his brigade system today. The kitchen brigade was, and the dining room brigades were two channels that Escoffier could use to organize the kitchen and the restaurant as a whole and allow the guests to have better dining experiences. Each station would be exact in its task and Escafé would be running kitchens with 68 to 80 cooks at the time. Uh, so many cooks were needed because even though he organized kitchens, he had so many different functions and the tools back then weren't as good as they were now. So you had people doing what we would usually be doing much easier, like grating large amounts, large amounts of cheese or, you know, we use Robocoos now. Like, people had to chop everything back then. So, obviously, now the kitchen sizes can be smaller due to better technology and understanding of kitchen equipment. But back then, uh, he had these different stations with all these different cooks. 
and the aim for the brigade was to cut down on waiting times for the guests and to serve the food exactly at the right temperature. Like I said earlier, when food was served, it was served all at once, and people would end up eating their food cold, their main entrees cold, and proteins cold, and Escoffier had an issue with this, and he wanted guests to be able to get food faster, and he wanted them to get it at the right temperature so they could enjoy it um, at the right moment. You know, he really understood that temperature was a big part in the uh, guest perception of enjoying their food. And at the top would be the chef de cuisine, or executive chef, responsible for all the kitchen operations. And this person developed the menus, the theme of the restaurant, and set the tempo and tone of the restaurant, really enabling what the, what diners could expect to come uh, when they went to go dine out at the restaurants. The sous chef was the second in command. He was responsible for scheduling placement and changing the staff at different stations. He was really the person who did all like the, the office work, per se, helping people you know get their shifts and helping people move around the kitchen, and he was one who would promote or demote cooks. Uh, next came the chef's day party. These station chefs allowed for consolidation of the different sections of the menu. So when Escafe was writing menus, he would have different uh, sections in his restaurant where cooks would do different functions. And this helped the restaurant be more efficient. So, example, the saucier held one of the most difficult stations. Because the saucier had to have experience because sauces are a big part of what makes dishes so uh, great, especially in, in Escoffier's time. If you were a great associate, you were well-regarded in the food industry because that meant you were you experienced, you were able to balance flavors beautifully, and you were able to manage a lot. So the associate was needed to make sauces and sautéing most dishes in the restaurant. The rotisseur, or the roast station chef, was responsible for roasting and ma- making the jus, uh, the sauce uh, for roasted meats uh, that make them so delicious as well. The poissonet, the fish chef, was responsible for fish and sel- shellfish. Uh, this person was very important to the brigade because they were able to be experts in seafood cuisine. The potager was responsible for stocks and soups. But Tessier, the pastry chef, was responsible for all baked items and supervised the boulanger or bread baker. The entremette was responsible for hot vegetable pickup. Garmin J, as so many of you culinary externs and CIA grads know, uh, was a pantry chef, a station that I've been that I was on for quite some time. And the tournant was the relief chef. Under these station chefs were demi chefs, which were assistants, and commis, which were apprentices. And you know, there's a lot of job functions. And like I said, when you break this up between sixty to eighty cooks, uh, it's able you're able to organize and lead much more effectively. And this chain of command, this chain of hierarchy, allowed for kitchens to be more effectively, um, just allow them to be more effective in their way of putting out food to the guests. The dining room brigade was uh, broken up as well, and the maitre d' was in charge of the dining room and was also responsible for operations in the front of the house. So the maitre d' was someone who oversaw everything. And they were also responsible for helping with menu development. So Escoffier really put pride in his front of house staff so much that maitre d's would help him think of menu items and dishes, and they were also responsible for the wine list. And, you know, as we all know, they were responsible for seating patrons and really – Really just letting people come into the restaurant and knowing what they're all about. The sommelier or wine steward included all aspects of wine service. And while the, uh, which we call it, maitre d' was responsible for selecting what type of wine he wanted, the sommelier was actually the one who went out and sought the best of that type of wine. And so the sommelier selected and purchased wines, printed the wine list, and helped guests with wine, price, and affinities for the food selected. And the proper opening and serving of the wine made a great sommelier. So not only selecting the wine and having the knowledge, but it be, to be able to be a showman and be able to be someone who 
was able to just sell wine effectively and then give it to the guests in a way that they would remember. The chef de saie or head waiter is in charge of service and waiters for the dining room. So this is someone who was able to uh, kind of be like a captain to the people um, in the dining room. And the captain also dealt with guests when seated, explaining the menus, taking orders, and preparing table-side food. You know, you think of uh, table-side Caesar um, or different side preparations back then. Escoffier was known for his well-done table-side food, and so that's really where this position came from. The chef de range, or front waiter, set the table for each course, ensures proper delivery of food, and is there to manicure the guests at all times. The demi-chef derange or busboy fills water clears plates fills bread baskets and assists the higher ups and this is basically what the hierarchy of the kitchen was like in escoffier's time uh i want to i mean i think it's very important that escoffier built this obviously i mean we still use the system today and we dedicate a lot of our time to using the system so that was his impact on it i mean to change the way an industry works i mean you think of Henry Ford in the automobile industry, and then you think of Escoffier in the restaurant industry. I mean, that's what he meant to us as cooks and chefs. And so it was very important for him to um, do all of this. Uh, Escoffier was also very artistic in terms of naming his dishes. Uh, you know, most notably, his Peach Melba came from the opera singer Nellie Melba. Uh, she was someone he looked up to in terms of artistry and creativity. Um, he also made the dish Cuisset de Nymphes à la Aurore. It was a name to disguise the main protein was dish. So basically in 1908, uh, the London Savoy Hotel held this event for the English and Escoffier wanted the protein of his dish to be frog legs. It was something in France that he really admired and adored. And so he disguised the name of the dish and was able to serve the protein to about 600 guests, which they all enjoyed and which he unveiled that they were frog legs after. And surprisingly, they were all okay with it because they enjoyed it so much. Um, You also might be... Very familiar with Bombay, um, the name of Bombay Nero, uh, which is a French dessert made in a spherical mode. It is named after a Roman emperor. So, you know, this dessert is made on, you know, putting in ice creams and freezing and putting in ice creams and freezing in this mold. And he named it after a Roman emperor who he looked up to. I mean, his names for dishes came from all types of his inspirations and people he looked up to in history and in the present and people he wanted to honor in the present. So I thought that was very interesting. Um, a little bit more about him. He was also the person who helped refine fuel stock into what we know today. So he was someone who was very interested in the study of sauces and stocks and soups and canned goods. And he was always trying to make it easier for cooks to impart more flavor. Uh, he was a proponent for better lifestyles for cooks, not allowing shouter, shouting or anger in his kitchens. Um, it was very important for him to have kitchens that were well run, well executed. People that were you know, professional and wanted to be there to cook and not just be someone who screamed and shouted and yelled and got frustrated. He really hated the barbaric sense of what a kitchen was. He hated the sense that kitchens were, you know, for him, kitchens were supposed to be places where people could go ahead and get great experiences and eat great food and have great times with their friends or loved ones or families. And he hated that people in the back would be uh, arrogant or be anywhere sort of like, you know, a Gordon Ramsay type symbol where people were shouting and screaming and whatnot. So the anger in his kitchens were not allowed. And he was also a big proponent for people to receive medical care and pensions. He really was someone who looked after his kitchen workers. He cared about the people in the kitchen. He saw and admired, much like I do, and much like so many of you do, he saw and admired the people that work in kitchens. And he wanted to give back to them and take care of them and be able to just, you know, really just profoundly change their lives and change what the profession meant. 
and to elevate it, elevate it in some way. I mean, cooking for him was something that he loved. It was something that he, you know, his whole life he devoted to changing the industry and making things better. He saw an industry that a lot of people saw as low class and he just brought it and elevated it. And I know I've repeated that a, a couple times, but I need you to know why he was so important. Um, he was so important because he elevated what a cook was. He elevated what we all are today. Without Escoffier, we would not be what we are today. He is someone who took the industry and made it into something far much greater than he ever thought was possible. And through writing his books and his can goods products and everything in between, he was able to manufacture himself as one of the greatest chefs of all time. You know, we look back today on the great chefs and his name will always come up no matter how far ahead in the future we go, because he really was responsible for why we do what we do today. And so the reason I wanted to go into Scoffier and kind of research this man was because I just look up to people who change industries. I look up to people who innovate and pioneer and motivate other cooks. He was a hero for cooks. He's someone who is still a hero, hero for cooks. I mean, his book can be found in countless kitchens around the world. His name is spoken with such high regard and reverence. And, you know, I think we all only hope to be half of what he was today. And so just wanting to honor him with an episode and give him his time to shine is really what I enjoy the most. This is why I enjoyed researching him the most. Just knowing the type of person he was, knowing that he cared for the cooks, knowing that he cared so much about this industry, knowing that he was someone who, above all else, we could look up to and he could be a symbol for chefs to come. I mean, this guy was cooking in the early 1900s. I mean, you think about what that time period was like and still the impact he has on a cook like myself over 100 years later is just crazy. So I just wanted to give a thank you to Augustus Raffier. Um I know he's not hearing this, but it's important that we remember where we came from, cooks. And I think it's important that we remember our history, our heritage, and the people who made our um, made our lives a lot better because of their work. And I, like I said, I don't know where our industry would be without Escoffier, to be honest. And I'm not sure where we would go. Uh, but I really enjoyed talking about the man who kind of changed an industry forever. And yeah, that is it. That is my recollection of Escoffier. This is my uh, research on him. This is my podcast episode on him. Uh, I just wanted you all to be more informed of him. Uh, I could have talked a lot more about the different things he did. There's so many different stories and articles and recountings of him that you'll have to check out if you're more interested. But I wanted to have this obviously at a proper length of a podcast. I wanted you all to not get, I want you to get overburdened with so many different stories much like he didn't want his guests to be overburdened with so many different courses. Uh, so this is just a taste of what Escoffier truly was. You can definitely find out more online. There's so many different articles and books about him. And, you know, I just really want to honor him in a podcast form. Thank you so much, Line Cook Nation, for listening. And thank you so much for just supporting my endeavors and what I want to do with this page, with this channel, with pretty much everything I, I do on the podcast. I mean, I think it's so cool that y'all tune in every week to listen. And if you want to hear more about the people in the past, let me know. If you were very happy about this format, let me know. I mean, this is the first time I'm ever doing anything like this. I know it was a little choppy. I know um, I know it's, it's hard for me to sit down and really do things that are scripted out or things that are written out. But I really hope that I conveyed the message of how important he was as a cook to all of us. And I really hope you just leave this episode a little bit more knowledgeable than if you had answered it and really didn't know who Escoffier was. And if you knew who he was and you just really enjoyed hearing me praise him um, even better. So thank you so much for listening, Line Cook Nation, and I will see you on the next Line Cook Thoughts podcast.